Welcome to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock, the show for the outrageously audacious, the loudly passionate and the slightly delusional. Together with some of my favourite people, I hope to have new, inclusive and exciting dialogues that hold space for the anger and joy that come with coming of age. So brew a cuppa and have a listen as we keep the rage tender. Angels, welcome back to another episode of Tender Rage and the first of our solo episodes. I have been so overwhelmed and just completely grateful to receive all of the lovely feedback from our listeners that we've gotten so far on our first two episodes. Um, The reception has been absolutely more than I imagined and I'm just so grateful for anyone who shares our content, who listens to our content or who supports our content and I can't wait to keep creating exciting new dialogues with you and for you and you know having sort of taken stock of the response and looked at sort of the ideal episodes coming ahead I'm really excited and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So before we begin with today's episode I want to do an acknowledgement of country. I want to acknowledge the Gadigal and Wangal peoples of the Eora Nation and the traditional custodians and knowledge keepers of the land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. This episode is going to be a little different, not just because you're exclusively, well, almost exclusively, hearing 20 minutes or so of my voice, but because it is the first of our advice sessions. This special fun little segment is called You Are Sunny because I don't know about you, but I love romance, I love love, I love advice, and I wish that we were writing letters to each other. And I just think there's something really beautiful and sincere about, you know, taking the time to sit down and write notes to one another and signing them off. And I'm a huge words of affirmation person. That's my love language. So I feel like this is kind of my compromise. I'm giving you advice. I'm sending you my love and I'm signing it off. This is just my perspective. My advice is not necessarily qualified, but I feel like as a big sister, and a resident opinion haver, I feel like I'm somewhat qualified, but take everything with a grain of salt. Our first request says, do you have any advice on being a bigger black girl and accepting yourself in high school? Wow. Okay. I resonate with this so, so much. I myself exist in a bigger body. I am curvy and somewhat plus size. As you know, some of you know, I'm mixed race, um, although I benefit a lot from white passing privilege. So in high school, I really felt othered. And a lot of that was by myself. A lot of that was by the media. And a lot of that was just through the whole comparison game that all of us do. And it's so hard not to do that in general, but particularly in high school. High school is you know, some of the best of times and the worst of times. And I promise you that life gets better. And, you know, I have the benefit of knowing this particular user personally. I know what she looks like. I know who she is. I know how much she shines and I know the school that she goes to. And so I can really, really relate to your experience. And so I do feel somewhat equipped to give you some advice. And I feel really honored that you'd shared this with me. So thank you so much. First of all, one thing I am really, really learning is that your difference is your superpower. Whether you feel like being noticed or standing out is for good or for bad, you get people's attention just by virtue of being different from the rest. The things that you don't like about yourself will one day be the reason that somebody adores you. Everything that makes you stand out is going to make people curious. It's going to invite them in. It's what gives you your edge. It's what makes you you. And that is so special and you would never want to change that. 
How you look and who you are comes from your ancestors who have fought so many different battles to be here and to birth you. And they would want you to feel pride in who you are. And I know that's difficult because I'm sure they struggled with those journeys, but they struggled and hopefully overcame them so that you could do the same. It's our rite of passage. It's our rite of passage to look at the world that tells us that we're too big, too dark, too loud and say, I disagree and I'm perfect the way I am. And I detest the system that enforces these narrow binaries on us and tells us to shrink, tells us to assimilate into white culture. Your body is not the problem. The white patriarchy is. And the sooner that we sort of differentiate the things that we dislike about experiences of marginalization with the things that we dislike about our identity, the better. We don't necessarily all hate being fat or black or big or curvy or mixed or non-white. We hate the system that tries to tell us that those things are bad. We hate the systems that make those lived experiences difficult for some of us some of the time. We hate racism, we hate fat phobia, and those are all things worth dismantling. And I think for me, I know that going on that journey of when I couldn't necessarily find the love for myself, leaning towards the theory and going towards people who knew better, once I could really identify what was at play, it helped me understand that my experiences that were somewhat, unfortunately, a rite of passage for all high school students, for all women, women of color, women of size, they were deliberately designed to make me feel this way. These systems have intent, they have purpose, and they're so much bigger than us. They've been in action for years. And just because we all feel this way doesn't mean that we need to or we should. I want you to know that body diversity is normal that bodies are meant to look different from one another. We are all meant to be different and there's something so beautiful about all of us representing different types of beauty. I want you to find women who look like you and to look up to them because when you can't recognize the beauty in yourself, when you see the beauty in them, you slowly connect the dots and it becomes so much easier. And when you can believe that you can find them beautiful, then it's not so strange to think that somebody might be able to recognize those qualities in you and equally praise them. As a black girl, I want you to remember that we exist in a culture that idolizes and accepts big black women. The beauty standards, although they come with their own limitations, in black culture are widely different from the Eurocentric white beauty standards that govern mainstream society. I want you to create yourself a little bad bitch playlist. I literally, year 10, year nine, I would walk around the school between classes with my headphones on blasting Sierra and Missy Elliott, two black women who made me feel so much pride and joy in being black, being a woman and being a creative. And when you listen to them, it is impossible not to feel like the baddest bitch on the planet because you are. You need to stop sleeping on yourself. As you listen to that bad bitch playlist and maybe you feel kind of corny or kind of fraudulent, remember that nobody in high school knows what they're doing. Even the people who do benefit from white privilege, slim privilege, pretty privilege or whatnot, nobody knows what they're doing. There's something about high school and adolescence that is inherently awkward. There's something about being human that is inherently awkward. And I want to tell you that as somebody who felt awkward in high school, who felt like they weren't beautiful enough, that they were too big enough, they were too different, they were too ethnic that after high school shit gets so much better because you realize that the world is so much bigger than the walls that confined you for six or so years. And you realize that everybody else was struggling and that when you finally get the confidence to be your full self around other people and you see that they don't recoil in horror, you realize that, wow, I could have been myself all along and it would have been totally fine. This is what people 
want to see and want to resonate with. And I really found that when I left school and I stopped self-filtering, I stopped being so mindful of the image that other people had of me. And I know this isn't the advice you want, but you kind of need to step outside of your comfort zone and do the things that scare you. You know, I wore a tight bodycon dress to my year 12 formal that I was terrified to wear. I'd seen it on other women and I wanted it on myself, but I told myself that my stomach was too big. My arms are too large. But when I wore it, I'd literally never been complimented more in my life on something that I wore. And there was something so vulnerable, but exciting about stepping out as your full self, not hiding anything and still getting praise for it. There's something about when you're shrinking and you're filtering or you're sucking in your stomach and getting praise that feels lukewarm because you think, oh, well, if they knew how I really was, they wouldn't say it. It's because I'm wearing this or I'm doing that. But when you are yourself, it empowers other people to be the same. And that energy is infectious. Lastly, I want you to find unique things to love about your body, about your race, about your culture and your lived experience. For me, any times that I'm unkind to my body, and unfortunately that is often, I remember that when I'm on the dance floor, my body feels like the most powerful weapon or tool I could ever be equipped with. The way that it moves is so unique to how I am shaped. It's so unique to the way in which I move through the world. I love it when I hug somebody and they tell me that it's the best hug that they've ever received and they've missed it. You have the power to do that. And that's not to say that people with other bodies don't have other similar powers, but your power is yours. Utilize it, embrace it, and celebrate it. Whiteness is not the end goal. It's not the prize. They'll try to position it as such, but let that be the fuel to the fire. Let that remind you that they're sleeping on your beauty, but one day they won't. How do I let myself be unproductive and let hobbies be for fun and not for gain? Hi, friend. Gosh, this is an age-old problem that I could not resonate more with. I completely understand your struggle. It's a journey that I'm still on. Capitalism and hustle culture have really pushed this narrative that in order for us to have value, we need to be creating and releasing output. But sometimes that's not always possible, especially when you look at the climate that we live in and have lived in for the past year. Shit is stressful. We can't just keep going and burning the candle on both ends. You need to nourish to flourish. And when I feel guilty about that, as I always do, I turn to one of my favorite quotes by author and poet Cleo Wade, and that's only a full tank can go the distance. Now, when you think about what you want to achieve and who you are and what your goals are in the long term, it makes absolutely no sense to go so hardcore and be so continually productive without rest that when what you really want to do, when the rewards of that behavior come and you finally have the opportunity and moment to shine, you have no energy to show up for it and it means nothing to you. This has happened to me before. Amazing milestones and life moments that I really would have loved to have been more present for and more receptive to flew by me because I was too tired to enjoy them. And that's because I had absolutely sped through the journey to get there. And if you don't take stock of your wins and your successes and allow yourself to rest, it compromises your ultimate vision. And that vision for yourself needs to be more important than the pressure we feel to be the best and to post on Instagram and to compare ourselves to others. If you struggle to have that self-compassion and you're still thinking in the productive binary, which most of us do, then why don't you reframe rest? Rest is inherently productive when we look at it as a means to recharge. And when we look at recharging as the only way to fuel our creativity, to be more present, to have the best ideas, to not hate our craft and hate what we're doing, then rest is inherently powerful. It's vital to the journey and it can't be replaced. I know that reframing rest 
as purposeful and productive is really difficult. And so I'm going to pass the microphone to our fabulous editor and co-producer, Evelyn DuBose, who has some really insightful advice on the matter. Yes, hello, Evelyn here. Thank you guys so much for all your wonderful feedback on our first several episodes. So I think this is something that my therapist and I have talked a lot about, and because I do a lot of writing for fun, and I do a lot of composing for fun, it's letting myself truly be present in the moment and playing and not trying to monetize what is also an emotional outlet for me, let alone my job and what I do professionally. You're going to feel some guilt and some shame over wasting your time because we're constantly bombarded with the messages that we need to occupy our moments. And because being lazy and useless or a burden to society are ways that we've been told not to waste the space that we take up, but you can take up space. You're not lazy. Perhaps you're demotivated and you can sort of interrogate a bit more why you might not feel motivated to do the things that are necessary for your life. You're not useless, you're resting. As Sunny said, being productive is more than just working to sustain yourself. You can sustain yourself in other ways. You can play, you can bake, you can go for walks, you can take yourself on little adventures around the city, you can do photography, you can do arts and crafts, you can build a pillow fort. I mean, how many of you guys loved doing all that stuff as a kid, but suddenly now that we're adults, we're not allowed to do that? That is some nonsense right there. That is capitalist nonsense and we do not stand for it. And absolutely, no one is a burden on society. You contribute in your own way, even if it's just self-care. And so, yeah, take a note from your inner child. Children are really good at just playing. Chances are, you still love to do what used to bring you such joy when you were a child. Whether that's arts and crafts, running around, dressing up, making a mess in the kitchen, just whatever used to bring you joy will probably still bring you joy now. And joy is lovely lean into that feelings are the best they're big and mushy and they will only serve to bring you the experience that is being a human so embrace it go for it you have our permission Last but not least, how to be a positive and proactive ally to the BIPOC community and others. Telling people how to be a better and more proactive ally to marginalized communities, specifically the Black and Indigenous communities, was a huge theme of my 2020. My main piece of advice is that, homegirl, you need to collect your people. And that is an obligation that all of us have. By collecting your people, I mean calling them out when they say things that are bigoted or biased. Encourage them to do further reading. Encourage them to listen to marginalized communities. Your potentially racist white cousin might be the reason for somebody else's suffering. And if I approach them, or if somebody from that marginalized community approach them, they're not going to respond in a positive way. But they immediately have default respect and love for you and are going to give you more airtime than they would somebody from that community. You're seen as non-threatening, you're seen as trustworthy, you're seen as intelligent and capable of adult thought. And so they're going to listen to you so much more than they would anybody else. It's the responsibility of ours to have those conversations at dinner tables and to interrogate those things. And gosh, it is completely uncomfortable, but it shouldn't be. Because if we can't collect our folks, how the hell is anybody else supposed to? I think a lot of people are good intentioned, but they're just misinformed. They feel threatened in some way because they feel like something is being taken from them. 
And while that fear of losing privilege in my mind sits pretty low on the hierarchy of, of oppression, I'm, I'm so much more concerned with the people who are actually facing legitimate marginalization. It is still something that feels very serious to them. And I think it takes reaching out to them and explaining to them what, what truly is at stake and cluttering through the misinformation and humanizing the cause. It really takes that to change perspectives and opinions. And that's not going to be settled within one conversation, but it sure is a start. And even if they seem defensive or if they resist the conversation, that doesn't mean it hasn't gotten through to them because you've planted a seed. And the fact that you've even elicited a response means that they internalized that in some way. They digested it and it had an impact. It means that you're powerful. And when you're powerful, you should use your power for good. And being a positive and proactive ally, I want you to remember that this is a lifelong journey and commitment, which sounds really intimidating. But when we remember that the goal of these movements is actually to secure greater joy, freedom, safety, liberation, and equality for marginalized communities, then that should be a struggle that is rooted in securing joy, and therefore it should be joyful. Unfortunately, it isn't, but we can try and reclaim that. I want you to show up for these communities that you're allied with by continuing to listen to them. Yes, there is absolutely role for discourse, and it's really important to have conversations across different communities, but it's also important to know when our voice is not needed and what it is, and when we just need to sit there and listen and show support and understand that what they say might be uncomfortable to us. But feeling uncomfortable is not a reason to quit, not if you want to be a sincere ally to this community. Lean into your discomfort. Become comfortable with knowing that you know nothing. Become comfortable with knowing that there is no finish line. Become comfortable with knowing that if you're an ally, that's not just something that you can self-proclaim. It is something that you can and should try to be, but it is only something that can be measured and defined by somebody from that community. What's the point in saying that you're helping that community if they don't feel helped, if they don't feel your support? That means that your attempt to be a proactive ally is simply rooted in looking good to others. It's rooted in signaling your virtue, and that helps nobody. So unpack before you begin this journey, because it's not an easy one. What is the motivation behind your efforts and attempts to be an ally? Is it to feel better about yourself? Is it to look good to other white people? Or is it to look good to other communities? Or is it to genuinely make change? Because if it is, then you're going to put your ego aside. This work has absolutely no room for ego. I want you to realize that because it is a long fight and sometimes an unpleasant one, that burnout is a very real consequence of that. And if you feel that, People of color feel it tenfold, so don't rely on their emotional labor. Yes, it's important to hold space for conversing with them, for hearing about how they truly feel, for hearing about the way that they live and how that differs from your lived experiences, but don't rely exclusively on them. To tell folks who need your help while they're dealing with their own trauma that they need to sit down and prioritize your feelings and your emotions and your laziness when Google exists, when the same resources that educated them are available to educate you, it's an act of trauma in itself. And I know you and I know allies, you all don't want to do that. So just be aware that it comes across that way when you're only relying on conversations with other people, people who can only speak for themselves and not their entire community to educate you. There are so many amazing books. And yes, you can ask them for any suggestions on books that were really profound to them, but Google it. I've written some lists of resources that were really helpful to me, and they're definitely available online. While any of this advice is relevant to any marginalized community that you might be seeking to help, I want to make a more specific reference to the black community. Obviously, Black Lives Matter was a huge part of the 2020 discourse, and it is bleeded over into 2021 as it should, because 
We shouldn't just be talking about these issues when it's trendy because people are still being killed. People are still experiencing microaggressions. They're still being excluded. They're still feeling unsafe in their communities and unheard. The recent murder of Dante Wright has reminded us that the Black Lives Matter movement is far from over and that there is a huge amount of work left to be done. In raising awareness for this, I want us to remember that sharing trauma porn is not effective, that there are people who are following your stories who will be traumatized and hurt by watching videos of George Floyd's murder, Dante's murder, of the gruesome details of Breonna Taylor's murder and the complete lack of justice that followed. So many of us turn to Instagram for escape, for distraction, for entertainment and support. And so logging on, trying to seek distraction from the trauma that is involved in the real world and being faced again with, with triggering content is not helpful. We are beyond the raising awareness stage. We need to be enacting meaningful change and sharing these videos, these posts, these stories and these conversations is not the way to do it. I want you to show up when it's not just trendy and I want you to do the deep and uncomfortable work. Some of that work isn't always public. It involves sitting down, reading, and having quiet conversations with yourself and your loved ones. I know you and I know that you are completely equipped to do this and that it's not going to be a perfect journey and you're allowed to make mistakes. Know that being called out is a gift that calls you to be better. It's an act of love. It's not a personal attack and that mistakes are inevitable. But you've got this. We've got this. Show up for your loved ones. Let them sit down and process their feelings as they need to. Hold space for their mixed emotions. Hold space for their anxieties and their lack of urgency they may feel to jump in and have discussions about Black Lives Matter with you. We all know the theory at this point, but it's time to put these steps into practice. It's time to truly and really show up for each other and sign on to the cause beyond the three or so months that it will trend on Instagram. Because when you start to see the problems more clearly, then you can begin to identify the solutions. Thank you to all of the users who submitted advice, to those who I didn't get to. Hopefully we can have further conversations about this, but I wish you absolute luck on your journeys. I hope that those of you who listened and maybe didn't submit advice found this conversation valuable and that you're looking forward to more Yours Sunny segments coming your way soon. So if you've got any advice, take stock of it and you might be featured in one of our upcoming conversations. You've been listening to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock. You can follow me at Sunny underscore Adcock on Instagram. Or for more content related to the podcast, you can follow us on at Tender Rage Podcast on Instagram. Tender Rage is an original production, written and directed by yours truly, Sunny Adcock. Co-produced and edited by Evelyn DuBose, who also did the music you're listening to right now. Thank you so much for tuning into this space. Get keen for more exciting episodes coming your way.